Soldiers in the West African country of Niger say they've taken control of the government in what appears to be the region's latest coup. It's Thursday, July 27th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, what's next after the plea deal for Hunter Biden was put on hold? Also, seven major automakers are teaming up to create an electric vehicle charging network across the country. They are making an enormous investment in electrification, and they have come to the realization that if they don't do this, that money is going to be lost. And this hour. The film is a rabid indictment of patriarchy and entitled male behavior. It's almost shocking. The unexpected praise for the new Barbie movie and sports Red Sox win and the U.S. women tie the Netherlands in the World Cup. Sunny, hot and humid today in the 90s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. House Republicans argue the ongoing investigation of Hunter Biden, the president's son, is proof that Congress needs to continue its probe and potentially consider impeaching the president. NPR's Deirdre Walsh has more. House Oversight Chairman James Comer says that the judge putting Hunter Biden's plea deal involving tax charges and a firearms offense on hold shows that the prosecutor is still reviewing issues regarding business deals something he's looking at. At the end of the day, I'm investigating Joe Biden. Hunter Biden's the subject of that investigation because I think the president used his son to launder all this money. House Republicans have not corroborated any allegations about any payments involving President Biden. But House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says these issues could trigger an impeachment inquiry. Democrats say this is about politics and impeachment is designed to divert attention from former President Trump's legal problems. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. The U.S. is condemning the military coup in the West African nation of Niger. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says mutinous troops need to immediately free Nigerian President Mohamed Bazoum. We call for his immediate release. We condemn any effort to seize power by force. Uh, We're actively engaged with the uh, Niger government, uh, but also with partners in the region and around the world. We'll continue to do so until the situation is resolved appropriately and peacefully. Members of Niger's government say they don't recognize the military coup. The National Weather Service says more than 180 million people in the U.S. are under some kind of heat advisory or warning. There are excessive heat warnings for Minneapolis and St. Paul, as well as for central New Jersey. It will likely be 113 degrees in Phoenix today. For the past 26 days, it's been 110 degrees or hotter. A North Carolina-based biotech firm is developing a medicine to protect people from fentanyl overdoses. The Food and Drug Administration has approved testing it in humans. From member station WUNC, Jason DeBruin prepared this report. The cessation therapeutics medicine sequesters fentanyl molecules in the bloodstream. This effectively neutralizes them in the blood before they reach the brain, preventing their harmful effects. Cessation CEO Tracy Woody says one dose could last 30 days. That not only protects the patient for an extended time, but keeps the patient in regular contact with their doctor, says Woody. They would receive it from their physician. It would be administered by a physician so that the physician could constantly check on them. This is the first time the drug will be tested in humans, so there's still a long way before final FDA approval. But getting this green light to begin clinical testing is a big milestone for any drug developer. For NPR News, I'm Jason DeBruin in Raleigh, North Carolina. On Wall Street and pre-market trading, stocks are higher. 
This is NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Today is going to be a hot day across the Boston area with temperatures in the 90s. With the humidity, it's going to feel like over 100. State-run swimming areas and pools will have extended hours to help people beat the heat. There will also be city-run cooling centers in Boston and Worcester. Nonprofits that serve unhoused populations are keeping a watchful eye on people in the heat. Ed Cameron with the Pine Street in is asking people to look out for those who may be vulnerable. Just really calling on citizens to keep an eye out uh, for for folks that are experiencing homelessness and just check in, say hi, how you doing, are you okay, um, do you need to get in? And I think, you know, if citizens can help be our eyes and ears. We'll have more on the forecast coming up in a few minutes. Work on the B branch of the Green Line is on schedule. That line has been closed with commuters taking shuttle buses. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports that repair work is nearly done. For nearly two weeks, shuttle buses have replaced Green Line trolleys between Kenmore Square and Boston College. The T's general manager, Phil Eng, acknowledges the shutdown has been inconvenient for riders. But, he says, it was necessary to bring that portion of the line into a state of good repair. New ties, new track, new base course underneath, new ballast. It's all going to be renewed as part of this work, and it's it's just about complete. Ang says the work will finish as scheduled on Friday. Regular trolley service will resume on Saturday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Supporters of a plan that would let Massachusetts residents change the gender on their birth certificate to a gender-neutral X hope this is the year their plan will pass. The bill has passed the state Senate three times before, but each time it stalled in the House. State Senator Joe Comerford, a Democrat from Northampton, sponsored the bill. You know, I think of it ultimately as a civil rights matter. People should have the right to identify as they choose in the Commonwealth and not be forced to identify as male or female if that is not the way they identify. Drivers have been allowed to use the ex-gender designation on their licenses since 2019. A truck crash is slowing traffic this morning on Interstate 95 in Wakefield. State highway officials say all lanes are blocked after Route 28. Only the breakdown lane is getting by. The crash is also causing delays on southbound 95. Those backups start at Walnut Street in Linfield. It's 7.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. The Red Sox beat Atlanta 5-3 to last night at Fenway. The Sox are off today. They'll visit the San Francisco Giants tomorrow. Sunny, hot, and humid today. It'll be in the mid-90s. We could get some storms this afternoon and evening. Cloudy overnight with lows only in the 70s. Sunny and hot again tomorrow, back to the 90s. It'll be hot again on Saturday. It's 72 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBOR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. You'll get a charge out of an upcoming story. Seven makers of electric cars want to build a network of 30,000 vehicle chargers. First, we mark an anniversary. 70 years ago today, 
A ceasefire took effect on the battle lines between North and South Korea. It froze the Korean War in which the United States supported the South. It did not technically end that war, which continues without a final peace agreement to this day. The people who have studied North Korea include Jean Lee. She is a former Pyongyang bureau chief for the Associated Press. Welcome back to the program. Hi, thanks for having me here. What makes this anniversary significant? I'm so glad that you mentioned that this conflict hasn't been resolved. You know, we call it the Forgotten War, but I think it's really important to recognize that North Korea has not forgotten it. This war still underpins so much of what we see from North Korea today. It's going to be marked very differently in South Korea and North Korea. Probably will pass very quietly in South Korea, but we're going to see huge events in North Korea because this is an opportunity for Kim Jong-un to reinforce the Kim family rule of North Korea. This is a war that his grandfather launched in 1950. His father used it to justify building one of the biggest militaries in the world. And today, the grandson, Kim Jong-un, is using it to justify mm. the need to build nuclear weapons. Does each country still claim the right to the whole peninsula? You know, North Korea certainly uses the fight to remove U.S. troops from the South Korean side as justification for its buildup of nuclear weapons. Um, on the South Korean side, South Koreans have moved on from the war in so many different ways and would much rather live, coexist with a divided Korea uh, rather than to imagine the country being one. I mean, mm. these are two countries now with vastly different economies. North Korea is one of the poorest economies in the world, and South Korea has the world's 10th largest economy. So two very different Koreas today, and the costs, I think, of reunification would be enormous. Are they, have they been separated long enough that you would say that they are no longer one country culturally? You've just said they're not economically, but what about culturally? Oh, absolutely. I spent so many years going back and forth, and I can tell you that that required me to speak two different languages. Even the all of the languages, all of the language that I used in North Korea was almost completely different. So I'd say that they can't communicate. They don't look the same anymore because they have completely different diets. Their political structures are different. Their cultural references are different. And how they see themselves in the world is so different. So I would say that there's that older generation, my parents' generation, that remembers the country when it was one Korea. But with each passing decade and each passing generation, that memory has become so distant. When I meet young North Koreans in North Korea, they speak completely differently than young South Koreans, and they are almost strangers. And I would say the South Koreans that my students in South Korea, the young South Koreans that I've gotten to know, really see the North Koreans almost as these distant cousins, distant relatives that they know they're related to, but really want to hold at arm's length. So this mm. is a reality that we may need to deal with when it comes to thinking about the difference between the two Koreas today. In a few seconds, what did you you think about when an American soldier who'd gotten in some kind of trouble recently crossed that ceasefire line? I guess not a border, but a ceasefire line from the south to the north. You know, I've been to that joint security area inside the DMC, and you can see how easy it is to step across. That's the only area where you can step across. There are, there are no barriers. But 
Oh, what a complication. Not only for diplomacy, what terrifying for his family, but it certainly complicates things whenever you have an American citizen in North Korea. So let's see how that, I hope they return him without any complication, but it certainly makes the relationship more difficult. Gene Lee is a former Pyongyang bureau chief at the Associated Press and hosts a podcast called The Lazarus Heist about North Korea's cyber theft. Thanks so much for your insights. Thanks for having me. Some 90,000 migrants have arrived in New York City since the spring of 2022. Single adult migrants are allowed to stay in a shelter for two months, after which they have to reapply. NPR's Jasmine Garst reports on conditions at the city's largest shelter. From the outside, the tall white building looks like any other hip new Brooklyn living space. Hundreds of migrant men sleep here every night, and with a total capacity of 1,400 people, it's a sort of mega shelter. Here's Mayor Eric Adams. We have no more room in the city. New York, Adams says, is overwhelmed. And we need help for the federal government. We've been very clear. NPR spent several days speaking to asylum seekers here. Many say conditions are dire. Davy is 26. He says he's fleeing armed conflict in Colombia. He's been living in the building for over a week. He asks that his last name be withheld for fear of retaliation. Davy says there's two bathrooms per 90 people. Parked outside, there are two trailers with showers for the entire building. On this day, many people are eating chips and water. They say that's lunch. Other times, they say the food has gone bad. What upsets Davy the most is the security guards. He says, I understand enough English to know they're insulting us. Dozens of migrants told NPR they've experienced physical harassment and insults. Professor Alora McCurgy teaches immigration law at Columbia University. For at least 40 years, New York City has provided a right to shelter to all people, regardless of their immigration status, who need a place to stay for the night. She says immigration policy in New York is undergoing a historic shift. And the recent changes announced by the mayor are devastating. New York City government did not respond to NPR's inquiries on this matter. Conditions here are so distressing, some would rather sleep under a nearby highway overpass. Others have no choice. There's a homeless camp of nearly 20 migrant men there. Among them is Jose Antonio. He says he left Venezuela escaping government harassment. Eighty people using two bathrooms, he says, it's a health hazard. When he arrived at the building a few weeks ago, it was still under construction. He says it didn't even have lights. He got into a fight to use the bathroom and was asked to leave. He now sleeps out here. During the day, he's been working odd landscaping gigs. But work is where the federal immigration bureaucracy labyrinth gets even more complicated. The soonest an asylum seeker can get a work permit is six months after they apply for asylum, but applying for asylum can take years. A lot of the men here are renting scooters to work for food delivery apps. 
By noon, the orders start pouring in. The men start heading out. It's a dystopian scene. Asylum seekers staying in a shelter and under a bridge, delivering pricey meals throughout New York. A few days later, they say the police sweep the camp. Here's footage. For several hours, the men say they are driven around the city on a bus. They sent NPR messages from inside the bus. They said they were being taken to two different shelters and turned away. The migrants were dropped off in Brooklyn again, walked back to the highway overpass to the camp. Many of their belongings were gone. One man says his immigration papers, cell phone, and clothing, all missing. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. Seven major automakers are banding together to launch a new electric vehicle charging network across North America. They want to build 30,000 chargers, which would be even bigger than Tesla's network. NPR's Camila Dominoski reports. As EV sales are on the rise, there is a huge push to build more chargers in the U.S. But Sam Abul Samet with the consultancy Guidehouse Insights says there's another problem. It's not just a matter of not enough chargers. The chargers that were there often didn't work. Or they just kind of work, like this charger I was at last month. Yeah, it's charging slowly. There was a warning that it was currently charging at a reduced rate while it doesn't update. Charging can also be confusing with hard-to-navigate apps. All of this can make drivers reluctant to buy EVs. So these seven companies, BMW, GM, Honda, Hyundai, Kia, Mercedes-Benz, and Stellantis, formerly known as Fiat Chrysler, they've decided to create a joint venture to build chargers themselves under one network so they can make sure they're fast, reliable, easy to use, make sure they're good chargers, great chargers, maybe even super chargers. Tesla's supercharger network, which Tesla builds, owns, and maintains, is extensive and reliable. It's a huge selling point for that company, and it's hard to overstate how it's shaken up the industry. Other companies have started joining the Tesla network, and now, with this alliance, trying to replicate it too. Abu al-Samid says the stakes are high for automakers. They are making an enormous investment in electrification. They have come to the realization that If they don't do this and they don't make it work, then that money is going to be wasted. That's going to be lost. The new network plans to draw on federal money to help fund chargers and will be open to all drivers. It doesn't have a name yet, but aims to open the first chargers next summer. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Wendy Sherman was the first woman to serve as Deputy U.S. Secretary of State. She'll reflect on the future of U.S.-China relations as she prepares to retire from the role after 30 years in diplomacy. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. 
More information at MEFA.org. We've all noticed more and more businesses asking us to leave a tip, from coffee shops and breweries to takeout and drive throughs The box popped up when I went to pay, like, what tip amount? I thought, you know, it's fast food. I don't tip. I didn't know what to do. I just didn't. But is Subway fast food? I wasn't sure. I started to panic. I'm Tiziana Deering, navigating the new rules of tipping. That's On Point, this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Our first official heat wave of the summer is expected to begin today. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce explains how hot it's going to get. A heat advisory is in place last through tomorrow. Highs in the mid-90s combined with intense humidity will mean heat index values around 100 degrees both afternoons. We'll need to keep an eye on the sky today, too. Scattered thunderstorms, some could become severe with damaging wind gusts. Even a very low risk of an isolated tornado can't be ruled out. Localized flooding, also a big concern. A flood watch is in effect. No storms tomorrow, but another round is going to move in on Saturday. Highs around 90 Saturday afternoon would make this our first first heat wave of the summer before relief arrives on Sunday. Much less humid, not nearly as hot, with a high near 80. It's 73 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies. Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. From the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Falden. Hi, Barbie! Hi, Ken! The Barbie movie was celebrated by a lot of people this past weekend, including feminists, which may sound a little strange because for a long time, the Barbie doll was seen as anti-feminist for her unrealistic body that made girls feel bad for not meeting an impossible standard. Barbie's small and so petite, her clothes and figure look so neat. With ads like that one from the early days of Barbie, M.G. Lord is the author of Forever Barbie, the unauthorized biography of a real doll. She points out that Barbie has been both cherished and reviled by feminists over the decades through the different waves of feminism since Mattel introduced her in 1959. And the new movie is hitting on the right message for the current wave of feminism. The film is a rabid indictment of patriarchy and entitled male behavior. It's almost shocking to see such a powerful message in a highly stylized, campy movie with all that pink. Yeah. I assume the camp kind of makes this really harsh, critical message palatable. I mean, because when I think of messages about the patriarchy and bringing the patriarchy down, I don't think of plastic, pink, or Barbie. And But th- I think that's what makes the whole thing so fabulous. And li- the other thing that's great about it, and this is this kind of gets to the feminism issue, is the way little girls actually play with Barbie. Yeah. I mean, the Barbies are the empowered ones, and the idealized Barbie land in the movie is 
the land of childhood and how girls play with these dolls. You know, they're the ones who have the jobs. When Barbie comes to life and goes into the real world, it's almost like a little girl going into puberty mm. and dealing with all the mishigas that gets heaped on women. I keep thinking about how anti-feminist Barbie was once seen over her unattainable body. And then today, Barbie's being described as a feminist. Why? A lot has changed about feminism. Um, the second wave of feminism, which kind of began, you know, when uh, the national organization was started in 1966, Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. Barbie got a blistering critique from that group of people. Mm -hmm. But I think it would be interesting to go back a little farther in her history. Initially, her message was very, I think, proto-feminist. The little thing has that body, but she also has, from the get-go, paraphernalia for a self-supporting career. I mean, the very first set of Barbie outfits came with a portfolio of fashion sketches. The designer of Barbie's wardrobe kind of invented Barbie in that way in her own image. So mm. she's got no husband and the ability to make a living in a real field was very similar to the message of Helen Gurley Brown's 1962 book, Sex and the Single Girl, which, despite all that breathy prose, was an anti-marriage manifesto and an argument for women's financial and sexual autonomy. Wow. So in some ways, Barbie in 1959, when she first came out, was a feminist. Well, I mean, she does anticipate um, some goals of feminism. But in 1971, the National Organization for Women accused Mattel of gender stereotyping boys and girls. At Toy Fair in 1972, there was another big protest around the idea that, you know, Mattel was encouraging little girls to see themselves as sex objects mm. or household servants. Third wave feminism that kind of took hold in the 1990s. I mean, it was, it was kind of less judgmental than the feminism of the of the 1970s. It sounds like Barbie herself changed as people's idea of what feminism and a woman is changed. You know, I was just looking before this conversation at the Mattel website and the types of Barbies that are on there. And there's a Barbie modeled off Laverne Cox, a very famous transgender actress. Uh, there's a Barbie modeled off Ida B. Wells, a vitiligo Ken, uh, a differently abled Ken, and things like that I didn't grow up with in the 90s. I grew up with the perfect bodied pink Barbies. They definitely had jobs, but I did not have those types of Barbies. I guess you would call it the fourth wave of feminism, Fourth wave feminism is concerned with this thing called intersectionality, this idea of body positivity, mm -hmm. that there is no one idealized body. And possibly in response to this, Mattel in 2016, you know, they tampered with what had been both the controversial and yet winning formula. You know, the idea was you could still be a Barbie and I, a highly valued commodity or whatever, but you didn't have to look a certain way as much as perhaps one did in the past. Does Mattel embrace the word feminist when it comes to Barbie? Mattel does not embrace the word feminist, certainly not in my experience. Ruth Handler, who founded Mattel and created Barbie, would not 
describe herself as a feminist. I asked her directly. The executives at Mattel, even now, you know, treated that word as if it were radioactive, which is kind of puzzling to me. Is Barbie feminist to you? I'm not sure I would really stick an adjective on the Barbie doll because the Barbie doll is so much of a Rorschach inkblot test. Often when you ask people about Barbie, you, you don't find out that much about Barbie. You find out an enormous amount about the person. People who hate Barbie for one reason or another, you know, one might say that they project their fears and prejudices onto the doll. And people who irrationally adore this hunk of plastic are also puzzling to me. And I think that may be kind of the secret to why she's endured so long. She weathers the projections and the conflicting projections of so many people. M.G. Lord is the author of Forever Barbie, the unauthorized biography of a real doll. She also co-hosts a new podcast called L.A. Made, The Barbie Tapes. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Someday I'm going to be exactly like you. Till then I know just what I'll do. Barbie, beautiful Barbie. I'll make believe that I am you. You can tell it's Mattel. It's swell. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBWAR's Morning Edition, the impact of record-level ocean temperatures on ecotourism in the Florida Keys. It's 7.29. WBUR's city space becomes an ice cream parlor for one night on Monday, August 7th. Come for a Sunday and a conversation about ice cream with local makers. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners and by the Peabody Essex Museum presenting As We Rise Photography from the Black Atlantic on view now. More at PEM.org and Plymouth Rock Assurance auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Under Biden's plea agreement on misdemeanor tax and felony gun charges unraveled yesterday after a federal judge in Delaware raised questions about terms of the deal. During the hearing, prosecutors acknowledged the president's son remains under investigation. Judge Mary Ellen Norieka declined to move forward until certain issues are resolved. It led to Hunter Biden pleading not guilty to charges of failing to pay more than $100,000 in taxes in 2017 and 18. NPR's Deidre Walsh says House Republicans also continue to investigate Hunter Biden as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy raises the possibility of an impeachment inquiry of President Biden over his son's business dealings. For now, House Republicans are pretty united on this idea that it's their responsibility to conduct oversight and investigate allegations, get testimony from witnesses and some Biden administration officials, but not all want a vote. Some Republicans are concerned an impeachment inquiry could hurt efforts by the GOP to win back the Senate.
The Federal Reserve is raising interest rates by another quarter point. It marks the Fed's 11th rate hike since March of last year, trying to curb inflation in the U.S. economy. Singer Sinead O'Connor has died at the age of 56. No cause of death was disclosed. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The National Weather Service says a heat advisory goes into effect later this morning for nearly the entire state. Temperatures will get into the 90s today, and with the humidity, it'll feel like well over 100. Cooling centers will be open in Boston, Worcester, Medford, and a number of other communities. The weather can be tough for pets as well. Mike Defina is with the Animal Rescue League of Boston. He says if you need to take your pet for a walk, check to make sure the ground won't burn their feet. Place the back of your hand on that surface, and if you can't hold it there comfortably for seven seconds, then it's certainly too hot for your pet to be walking on. So when they're outdoors, if possible, you want to try to keep them on grassy areas. Defina says if you can, it's best to keep your animals inside in the air conditioning during the hottest parts of the day. More mosquitoes carrying West Nile virus have been found in Worcester. The city says this is the second positive test there this year. So far, there are no human cases in the state. As Adam Frenier reports, all the flooding in the western part of the state could mean even more problems caused by the insects. Besides carrying diseases such as West Nile, the increase in the mosquito population can be just plain annoying. I was just at a resident's house in in Northampton, and... It was basically a cloud of mosquitoes in their backyard. That's John Briggs, who heads the Pioneer Valley Mosquito Control District, a group of more than 20 communities working to combat the insects. He says in addition to the usual summertime mosquitoes, there's been others emerging from flooded areas. So you have normal species in the summer that are, you know, they're typically there. And then you have these floodwater species that will kind of add to that. He says mosquitoes tested from one area in West Springfield were positive for West Nile. Pittsfield also reported the presence of the virus. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. Senators on Beacon Hill are giving their approval to a second supplemental state budget. The $500 million plan includes money for hospitals and funds special education. It also provides flexible assistance for farms impacted by recent flooding. The budget still needs final approval in order for the state to pay its bills past the end of this month. The legislature has so far failed to agree on an annual budget for the fiscal year that began Four weeks ago. It's 7.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. Make it four wins in a row for the Red Sox. They beat Atlanta 5-3 to three last night at Fenway Park. The Sox have today off. They'll visit the San Francisco Giants tomorrow. Clear skies and humid today with high temperatures in the mid-90s. There's a chance of thunderstorms late this afternoon and evening. Tonight it falls to the low 70s and the storms may continue. Sunny in 90s again tomorrow with high humidity. It's 73 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, 
working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. For a few days longer, Wendy Sherman is the Deputy Secretary of State, the number two U.S. diplomat. But she says her staff has already packed her office. I think that this exit is truly my last. Sherman is retiring after a career in three Democratic administrations. And during her final week, she talked with us. She asserted that the department has recovered from the personnel cuts of the Trump years. She also talked of a country with which diplomatic relations are strained, China. In recent days, China's foreign minister has also retired or has been retired much more unexpectedly than Sherman has. What happened to Chin Gong? It is uh, quite a mystery uh, what happened to the foreign minister. As Secretary Blinken said, he had had constructive conversations with Jin Gong, and obviously he had been the ambassador to the United States, so many of us got to know him rather well. This is a decision for the People's Republic of China, and uh, very glad that they've appointed Wang Yi to be foreign minister. I know him quite well, and he's a very important channel of communication for the United States. As for Jin Gong, nobody knows. When I see a move like that, I wonder, is that a personnel matter or a policy matter? Meaning, did they lose faith in this individual, or does this indicate some change in what they intend to do in the world? I don't see a change in what they want to do in the world. I think Xi Jinping has been very clear about what he wants to do in the world. I want to do things the way I want to do things. And if you want money and support from the People's Republic of China, you have to agree to do it my way. I'm thinking about the way the United States in this administration has tried to coordinate the policies of other nations toward China. I know that Western democracies are mostly united when it comes to a subject like Ukraine. Are they that united when they approach China? I think there's been a development in that arena. We now see a strong G7 statement. We see strong statements and actions by the European Union. Uh, we see uh, united sanctions when they're appropriate. We see as well areas in which the world hopes there's cooperation. Most recently, Special Presidential Envoy Kerry, head of our climate negotiations, went to China, had conversations. And unfortunately, what Xi Jinping said is China will do what it needs to do and decides to do for itself, but not part of an international process. I hope that's not how things play out, uh, because as Americans have certainly seen, uh, climate change is here. Our colleague Emily Fang reported on the program this week from Taiwan on the way that Taiwanese industry is retooling to make more weapons to support their defense forces. How great is the risk that they might need to use those weapons in the next few years against China, mainland China? I hope they don't. Our policy towards Taiwan has not changed. We believe that there needs to be stability and cross straits, that uh, no one should take unilateral action to change uh, that status quo. Uh, we don't support Taiwan's independence, uh, but it is important economic and political and security entity in the world. And I hope they don't have to, but again, China itself has to get in a more secure position in terms of its military to be able to take the action militarily. And I think it would be dangerous for the entire world, at least half 
of all shipping containers go through the Taiwan Strait. So any action would have severe consequences for the world economy, not just for Taiwan. Deputy Secretary, I want to ask about one other thing. President Biden has very publicly made clear he wants U.S. foreign policy to be better aligned with U.S. public opinion for whatever the U.S. does abroad to be popular at home, which maybe leads an administration to do some things or choose not to do certain things. Is there a situation in the world now, though, where that is hard, where public opinion just doesn't match what you think would be best to do? I actually think we're in pretty good shape in terms of public opinion. Ukraine is the obvious example in that way. The American public uh, supports what we are doing in Ukraine. They understand that Putin made this horrendous uh, decision to invade a sovereign country to try to undermine its uh, territorial integrity. The American public understands that we have spent a lot of money to help Ukraine defend itself. We haven't put American troops on the ground, which I think the American public would not want us to do. But we have to keep telling the story because populations can just tire of an issue which they wish would be over already. Deputy Secretary Wendy Sherman, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. She's retiring as the State Department's number two diplomat. In Central America's highlands lies one of the world's wonders, Lago de Atitlan. The lake draws in more than 300,000 tourists every year. NPR's Lili Quiroz is now one of them as she traveled to the lake in western Guatemala. Lake Atitlan is more than meets the eye. It wasn't always a lake with teal-colored water. To better understand what I mean, we've got to go underwater. The water is cool, but I can feel warm spots too. What I'm feeling is a natural hot spring. That's because about 84,000 years ago, a volcano stood here. After Los Chocoyos erupted, it collapsed inward, and it formed what's called a caldera, or a volcanic crater. As I surface above the water, I can see the volcanoes that are still standing, San Pedro, Tolimán, and Atitlán, and the 12 towns surrounding the lake. They're also a part of the draw to the area. In one of the towns, Panajachel, I meet with a local Maya tour guide. Eh, hola, soy David Alinán. There are three Maya groups that continue to influence the culture around the lake. Cachiquel, Quiche, and Sutujil. Surrounding towns have vibrant street decorations and shops that display colorful tejidos mayas, or Maya textiles. Hola. Hola. Gelenda Rosales has run her shop in Panajachel for over 15 years. She's still waiting for tourism to reach its pre-pandemic levels. We all rely on tourism here. If there's no tourism, then our sales are low. It is our job. It's what takes care of our families. Several locals feel the same. Tourism contributes 80% to the economy of any community here today. But my tour guide, David Alinan, says this comes with pros and cons. The positive side is the economic growth for several families, new access to technology and education. The negative part is the loss of identity. He says many people born here in the 90s don't know their native Mayan language, instead only speaking Spanish and a few other international languages. Still, Rosales encourages people from around the world to visit. There's a lot of calm and peace here. It's an alluring draw to this area. This country is known as the eternal spring country. 
With brief showers some evenings, the hot sun begins to set behind the volcanoes that surround the lake. Lily Quiroz, Panajachel, Guatemala. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR's Morning Edition, the story of a town in Florida founded by formerly enslaved people whose residents are now fighting state officials' efforts to limit how black history is taught there. There's a heat advisory in effect today with high humidity adding to dangerous conditions. It'll be sunny and in the mid-90s. There's a chance of showers and storms that may get severe this afternoon and into the evening. Overnight, it falls to the low 70s. Tomorrow, sunny, humid, and in the 90s again. It's 74 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com. Cambridge-based Infinity Pharmaceuticals is laying off 21 people. That represents more than three-quarters of its workforce. Infinity blames the layoffs on a failed merger with California-based MEI Pharma. Infinity shareholders approved the merger, but the plan failed to get enough support from MEI investors. West Newton-based shoe brand Rockport is getting a new parent company. Authentic Brands Group says it signed a deal to buy the company out of bankruptcy. Authentic also acquired Boston-based Reebok last year. Outdoor dining at Sullivan's on Castle Island is closed because of bold seagulls. The restaurant's owners say the birds are swooping down and stealing food from customers. Sullivan's employees tell the Boston Herald the birds steal up to five meals a day. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with the new season of Silent Witness. Every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. The ocean temperature topped 101 degrees this week in South Florida. For comparison, that's the ideal temperature of a hot tub. Temperatures like that are an environmental concern, especially for corals, but is it also giving those in the ecotourism industry in Florida some pause? Joining us now is Jennifer Pollum, Director of Conservation at Rainbow Reef Dive Center and also Executive Director of the Ocean Conservation Foundation. Jennifer, let's just start off with what happens to coral reefs when the ocean is hot. Well, when the ocean is hot, it's called bleaching, which I'm sure many of you have heard of. And um, essentially, corals expel the algae in their cell walls that helps them produce food, which means that they die. Um, They have about a month to come back if ocean temperatures cool. But given that it's so hot right now, it's fairly unlikely that uh, that's going to happen. And, and coral reefs, I mean, they're beautiful. They're so colorful. They've got, you know, critters swimming all over the place. I mean, it'd be a reason why I'd want to go and travel to see them. Um, does tourism suffer when reefs, when the reefs bleach, when they're not as pretty? We, we aren't seeing 
of course, people come down to, to see the fish and the corals and everything. We aren't seeing a dramatic business impact right now. Um, we're seeing a few people who don't want to maybe take their afternoon dive because the water is simply uncomfortably hot. We're seeing an equal number of people who would like to come down and try to see the reefs while they're still in the best condition that they can be. Um, the bigger impact, however, is that... It, Tourism economies like Key Largo, where we're located, are dependent almost entirely on the reefs and the marine ecosystems for boating, for fishing. In fact, there are a billion people worldwide who depend on coral reefs specifically, either directly or indirectly, for their livelihood. So it's a huge economic impact if coral reefs start to disintegrate uh, between fishermen, tourism, even processing uh, plants for fish or canneries for fish. Uh, the supply chain goes goes pretty far down. And so coral reefs are really vital for m many coastal economies. Is it too late to save the coral reef in Florida? Absolutely not. We need a lot of action from divers and non-divers. Uh, there are a lot of great organizations down here, coral scientific organizations, and of course our Ocean Conservation Foundation who uses professional divers to help outplant coral. But there is a massive effort going on down here right now to outplant the reef to try to mitigate the human impact that we've had already. The Florida Reef Tract is actually considered almost functionally extinct which means there's only 2% of the remaining corals that should be on the reef naturally left, which is why we have this massive uh, outreach program with scientists and with the government and with foundations like ours to actually outplant the reef because we believe that the reef can't come back without human intervention at this point. But, but there's uh, a lot of hope. But just about 20 seconds left, Jennifer. At least you do have some hope. Yes, definitely. There's okay. definitely hope. Uh, uh, we really need people to get active, though, about it. Um, we need people to understand the, the utility of coral reefs, that the food chain is dependent on it, and that coral reefs protect co coastal environments from storms. So it dissipates all of that wave energy before those hurricanes yeah. hit the shores. Jennifer Pollum, Director of Conservation at Rainbow Reef Dive Center, Executive Director of the Ocean Conservation Foundation. Jennifer, thanks. Thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Coming up at 825 on WBWAR's Morning Edition, we remember acclaimed Irish singer Sinead O'Connor, who has died at age 56. It's 749. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. A heat advisory goes into effect in the Boston area this morning with heat and humidity making it feel like over 100 degrees. Soldiers in Niger say they've detained the country's president and closed its borders as part of a military coup. And Russian President Vladimir Putin is promising to send free grain to six African countries amid continued refusal to extend a deal on Ukrainian 
green exports. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. Partly sunny and a high near 94 today. It'll be humid with a chance of scattered showers, thunderstorms, and gusty winds this afternoon and evening. Tonight, mostly cloudy and a low around 74. The storms may continue overnight. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 92. Right now, it's 74 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. When Russian President Vladimir Putin set out to invade Ukraine, he made his case for war by playing up several myths and conspiracy theories. The most prominent was that Ukraine was overrun by Nazis and needed to be liberated. Russian journalist Mikhail Zigar has made it his mission to dismantle some of Russia's most enduring myths in his new book, War and Punishment. He recently spoke with our co-host Leila Fadl. I started with seven most important historical myths Putin is always using, for example, that Russians and Ukrainians are the same people, or the most ridiculous myth he uh, continues repeating that there was no Ukraine before Lenin, and Lenin invented Ukraine. uh, And I proved that it's just propaganda. And unfortunately, most Russian historians used to work for those in power, and they were, in fact, propagandists. And I felt that it was really important for me to write this book just to to show that we need to start from the scratch. We need to destroy imperialist uh, historical narrative and to start the new one. These myths that you describe, how are they instilled in the collective Russian psyche? I mean, do you just grow up learning this in school? Like, how do people end up believing these myths that you you debunk in the book? That's something people are be, being told uh, in school, on television. You know, U- Ukraine was a part of the Soviet Union for 70 years. So many Ukrainians believe in the, in the same myths as many Russians do. And uh, in Ukraine today, there is uh, a special name for those Ukrainians who do not uh, fight Russian propaganda. And they are called Little Russians. Because back in 19th century, Little Russia was another name for the country. The only version of traditional Russian history was very imperialistic. At the the same time, I I do not believe that 100% of Russians are by everything Russian propaganda says. But when it comes to history, it it looks like a sacred cow. And uh, it's going to take a long time for Russians to admit the fact that, yes, the Russian empire was a bloody colonial empire. So do you see your book, this book, War and Punishment, as the alternative? I was I was trying to write the crime story written through the eyes of the murderer. So it's not the history of, uh, of Ukraine, it's uh, the history of Russian empire oppressing Ukraine. I think that... Um, it's very important to, to take the blame for the crimes of, uh, of Russian regimes. That's very important to confess that Russian culture and Russian literature are, are also to blame. And I think that other 
historians, that American historians have to deal with their myths and with their empires, and British historians have to deal with with their crimes and sins. And that's the, the work that many cultures and many nations have started. Uh, Russians are about to start that work to reconsider, to reanalyze our history. So this work is needed. As you point out, you wrote this book from outside Russia because you criticized the war when it started and you had to leave. So if you could just describe why you chose to speak up and why so many Russians do not. Mm, for me, leaving Russia was uh, was not a matter of um, safety. Uh, uh, much more it was some kind of moral obligation because when you when your country becomes a, f- a fascist state, you cannot live there. And yes, obviously, no, uh, now we know that, that thousands of people were uh, prosecuted for their protests. Uh, several friends of mine are now uh, in jail. And majority of Russians definitely know what's happening. I know that Russians are not supporting the war, because otherwise, if this war was supported by, by lots of people, we would probably see a lot of volunteers. I know that majority of Russians are really horrified. They are so scared. So the easier way is just to pretend that business as usual is possible, that uh, they chose not to read anything, not to watch the news, not to uh, seek for the information because they're helpless. They know that that, that they cannot change the, the, the situation. The title of your book is War and Punishment, and we're witnessing the first part of your title in Ukraine. Do you think there will ever be any punishment for what has happened? Putin annexed Crimea, intervened in Syria, invaded Georgia in 2008. Will there be consequences for him? So my sources in in Moscow, um, in Russian bureaucracy, are claiming that one year is probably maximum term uh, for President Putin to remain in power. So I'm absolutely sure that his days are numbered. And I was 100% sure from the beginning that this war means the end of Russian imperialism because it's it's so obviously brutal. So it uh, the whole concept of Russian exceptionalism and uh, of Russian empire as the greatest value will collapse after this war. So yes, I'm, I'm sure that uh, the punishment is already here. Hmm. You end your book with a call between President Biden and Ukraine's President Zelensky. Biden wants to discuss, and this is at the beginning of the war, the Russians are invading. Biden wants to discuss how to get the president to Lviv in the West so they can get him out. And Zelensky says, I need ammunition, not a ride. Why did you end there? It explains everything about Ukraine. Because Zelensky did that because he was prepared for that role by his life and his career. But he is not the exception. He is, the, in that sense, an average Ukrainian. And um, I think that's, that's really mm, my story had to end at that very moment because the story of, of Russian imperialism actually ends that moment. 
Mikhail Zigar is author of the new book, War and Punishment. Thank you for your time. Thank you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. WBUR supporters include the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College. Flexible, rigorous, relevant. Help manage data and insights to shape industry. bc.edu slash analytics. WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Soldiers in Niger have announced a coup imposing a curfew and closing borders in a country that's a key U.S. ally in West Africa. It's Thursday, July 27th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a judge has put a hold on Hunter Biden's plea deal in the prosecution related to his business dealings, also this hour. If you can't refute what is fact, then you try to erase what is fact. Concerns about how black history is taught in Florida, plus the growing number of court challenges to state bans on gender-affirming care. And there are calls for Massachusetts to tighten rules on utility companies using ratepayer money to fund political activities. That's absolutely not something that customers should have to pay for. In sports, Red Sox win, sunny, humid, and mid-90s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. More than 180 million people in the U.S. are under excessive heat warnings or heat advisories. Many states have soaring temperatures and heat indexes in the triple digits or close to it, such as in southern Maine. There are excessive heat warnings in the southwest, but also in parts of Kansas, Nebraska, Missouri, Iowa, Illinois, and Minnesota. Storms in the U.S. have caused at least $35 billion worth of damage so far this year. NPR's Rebecca Hersher tells us that's according to a report from the German insurance company Munich Re. Storms have caused significant damage across the central and southern U.S. this year. The costliest single event happened in Texas in June, when hailstones more than four inches wide destroyed cars and damaged homes. Losses in the tens of billions of dollars from such storms used to be rare, the authors point out, but are now a regular occurrence. One reason is that people are moving to places that are prone to severe thunderstorms and tornadoes. The storms themselves may also be getting worse. Scientists are still working to understand the potential connection between severe thunderstorms and climate change, but climate models suggest a warmer atmosphere supports powerful thunderstorms that can spawn tornadoes. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. The Justice Department is asking a federal judge to order Texas to remove a floating barrier in the Rio Grande. Texas Governor Greg Abbott ordered the buoys placed to stop migrants from crossing. Texas Public Radio's Dan Katz has more. The area around Eagle Pass where the buoys have been installed is a hotspot for border crossings and an already dangerous part of the Rio Grande to cross. 
There have been 89 deaths and 249 water rescues in the area since 2018, according to an affidavit from the U.S. Border Patrol chief. The Justice Department is asking for an injunction to require Texas to remove the buoys within 10 days and to block the state from installing any more river barriers without prior approval from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The buoys are Abbott's latest escalation of his controversial Operation Lone Star border security program that's testing the legal limits of a state's ability to enforce immigration policy. I'm Dan Katz in San Antonio. Seventy-five years ago this week, President Harry Truman signed an executive order desegregating the U.S. military. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, a retired four-star Army general, is the first black American to hold the top Pentagon job. Today, he praised Truman's action. That landmark order demanded equality of treatment and opportunity for all persons in the armed forces without regard to race, color, religion, or national origin. Austin is visiting the nation of Papua New Guinea. The U.S. is trying to strengthen relationships with Pacific Island nations to counter China's influence. This is NPR. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Today will likely be the first day of a four-day heat wave. It'll be our first one of the summer. Temperatures will reach the 90s today, and it'll feel even hotter than that. And this afternoon, there could be severe storms. Many communities, including Boston, have declared a heat emergency. Despite that, WBUR's Allie Dermanning talked with some people who will still try to enjoy the outdoors. Bridget Wilsey brings her lab Finn to Stoneham's Sheepfold Dog Park most days so the pup can get some energy out. She'll be there this week, too, armed with more water and a careful eye on how Finn's doing. Yeah, if he started walking towards the car, I would know it's time to go. <laughs> He'll tell me. Down at Wollaston Beach in Quincy, Steve Weekus plans to get in his regular six-mile walk, no matter how hot it is. This weather goes by too quick. It's so nice out now. The year's half, more than half over, and before we know it, we're going to be in the late fall. It goes by too quick. Every summer day is a gift, he says, even the hot ones. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. State lawmakers are considering tightening rules on the mandates for children's vaccinations. The bill from State Senator Ed Kennedy would remove language from the state law that allows parents to get an exemption based on a sincerely held religious belief. He testified yesterday that applications for those exemptions have surged 500 percent since the 1980s. That's despite a decline in the number of people who are religiously affiliated. This indicates that many people are taking advantage of the religious exemption and not vaccinating their children because of personal beliefs or misinformation rather than legitimately deeply held religious concerns. Opponents of the bill say they're worried about having to homeschool their unvaccinated children if they're not allowed into classrooms. The superintendent of Boston Public Schools says she has been, quote, effective in her first year on the job. In a self-evaluation, Mary Skipper says she's improved teaching for multilingual learners. She also says she's made school bus transportation better. The school committee will release its evaluations for Skipper in the coming weeks. 
MIT commuters are getting serenaded this morning. Students from the Berklee College of Music are performing outside of the Wonderland station on the Blue Line. They'll be there every Thursday morning from 8 to 10 until the end of the month. The performances align with the closure of the Sumner Tunnel, perhaps making the morning more pleasant for people dealing with a longer commute. The Blue Line is free while the tunnel is closed. It's 8.06. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. The Red Sox beat Atlanta 5-3 last night at Fenway. The Sox are off today. They'll begin a week-long road trip tomorrow in San Francisco. At the Women's World Cup in New Zealand, Team USA tied the Netherlands 1-1 last night. The American women will play Portugal on Tuesday in their final group stage match. Sunny, hot, and humid today. It'll be in the mid-90s. We could get some storms this afternoon and evening. Cloudy overnight with lows only in the 70s. Sunny and hot again tomorrow, back to the 90s. It'll be hot again on Saturday. Right now it's 74 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Want some new summer reads on us? Sign up for WBUR's Beach Books newsletter in the month of July, and you could win a $30 gift card to Beacon Hill Books. We're picking from our subscribers each week, so sign up for Beach Books at WBUR.org slash Beach Books. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The president of the West African nation of Niger was removed in a coup late last night local time, despite frantic diplomatic efforts to save his government. The president was held for several hours by his own guards at his residence, and then soldiers appeared on national TV after midnight local time and announced the president had been deposed. Emmanuel Akinwotu is NPR's Africa correspondent, joins us now from neighboring Nigeria. How have uh, the soldiers justified this coup? Well, a group of 10 soldiers, they appeared on national TV last night and one of them read a pre-prepared speech that really followed what's become a familiar blueprint um, for many of the recent coups we've seen in the region. He said they took over the government because of the deterioration of the security situation there. And he was referring to the Islamist insurgencies that are still raging. And he said because of the poor economy and poor governance. Until last night, we know um, that President Mohamed Bazoum was still being held at the presidential palace. Um, But in a further development this morning, actually, the president posted on social media, on his own account, and vowed to defend the country's democracy. So responding with defiant words, but it's not clear how he could do that. You know, uh, yesterday he was actually confident that the military would come to his aid, but they never did. There's been no apparent armed resistance to this coup so far. You know, Niger, is important to keep in mind, has been a key Western ally in a region where some of its neighbours have weakened or severed Western ties. And the US has a military base there with over a thousand troops, as does France with a larger force. But even though it's had Western military support, insecurity has actually gotten worse. And we'll have to see now how the military approaches these ties. You said Niger, a strong Western ally. How has the West responded? Well, as you'd imagine, the U.S. has condemned the coup in strong terms. They've demanded the president's release. Secretary Blinken, who actually visited Niger in March, said he spoke to the president yesterday to offer support and said U.S. support for Niger, crucially, depends on the continuation of democratic governance, in his own words. So, you know, there were really pretty urgent, maybe frantic diplomatic efforts last night to avert this outcome, which have obviously failed in the regional bloc of West African countries called ECOWAS. They sent a delegation to Niamey 
Um, but obviously that didn't work. Now we'll have to see how they all respond. Crucially, the challenge is that when juntas, when military leaders have launched coups in this region and then been isolated by the West, Russia has been there waiting in the wings to exploit this. And we've seen that in countries like Mali. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu, thank you very much. Thank you. Florida's Education Department approved a new social studies curriculum, which Vice President Kamala Harris alleged makes slavery seem positive. N.Y. Nathiri is in the middle of this. She leads the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community. Eatonville, Florida is considered the first U.S. town to be established by formerly enslaved people. Nathiri spoke with Michelle Martin. You're leading an organization dedicated to preserving the town's history. Could you just describe a little bit about why you think that's so meaningful? It's so important that all of us know as much about the full story of the American saga. And it's very clear that over the generation, significant portions have not been included in what you might call the canon. I assume that you've been watching with interest these uh, efforts by state officials in Florida to limit, to change how Black history is taught in schools. How has this um, struck you? I think that I share the view of some historians who talk about what happened with the Reconstruction period and how there was an aggressive effort to retell, to reshape the story of the Civil War. There's an effort to try to get around what is actual fact, so that if you can't refute what is fact, then you try to erase what is fact from easy public square. It's interesting that some of these initiatives that the governor and and his allies in the legislature have touted are intended to, they say, they don't want white children to feel bad. All I can say is this that the responsibility of each generation is to do the best that it can. What can you do? The history is the history. I mean, this is actually what happened. This is the latest assault. But I I don't think that we should be wringing our hands in despair and woe is me and what, what are we going to do? What we're going to do is to do what we have done historically, and that is to make sure that the true record, the factual record, is actually available uh, through other agencies. Does it make you feel like your history is being erased in some way? No, absolutely not. You just have to stand. You have to stand up. You have to stand up. No one can erase you unless you allow that. N.Y. Nathiri is the executive director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community. She spoke with Michelle Martin. Now, many people talk about the Florida standards without seeing the Florida standards. It's a 216-page document. I've got it open on my screen here, including the sentence that has drawn so much attention from Vice President Harris and others, the one about slaves learning skills. The people who put together the Florida standards include William Allen, who is a professor emeritus of political science at Michigan State University. And he is on the line. Welcome to the program, sir. Good morning to you. Let's drill down in a specific sentence that's gotten all the attention. It says, quote, instruction includes how slaves developed skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. What did you mean by that? 
I think the sentence explains itself. Its grammar is certainly perfectly clear. One refers to the fact that those who were held in slavery possess skills, whether they develop them before being held in slavery, while being held in slavery, or subsequently to being held in slavery, from which they benefited when they applied themselves in the exertion of those skills. Uh, that's not a statement that is at all controversial. Uh, the facts sustain it. The testimonies of the people who lived the history sustain it. Um. I think you're correct. Uh, you could even look at the movie 12 Years a Slave, which is a true story of a man who was enslaved who knew how to play the play the fiddle. People had different skills and used them in different ways and sometimes were able to make money for themselves while enslaved. That seems to be factually true. But the allegation here is that you were trying to make slavery seem nice, like a job training program. Did you intend to say that? Uh, the, the allegation is unrelated to the reality. And let me emphasize that I'm not the author, and no one in the work group is the author. This was a collaborative process, a deliberative process, and the result is a consensual agreement. Therefore, I do not speak to the intentions of the work group, and I don't substitute my intentions for the work group. Well, if you just look at that language, do you see anything that says that slavery is nice? When I look at that language, I see what Booker T. Washington meant when he entitled his autobiography Up From Slavery Rather Than Down In Slavery. I see what Frederick Douglass meant when he described his slave mistress teaching him to read only at the beginning because his owner put a stop to it. But that small glimmer of light was enough to inspire him to turn it into a burning flame of illumination from which he benefited and his country benefited. You're again telling a true story that Frederick Douglass told himself of how he taught himself how to read. I think you're saying that you see inspiration in that sentence rather than something awful. I think Douglass saw inspiration in it. I think those who followed him saw inspiration in it. And more decisively, I think Douglass and Ida B. Wells in 1893 gave explicit testimony to that inspiration when they were protesting the exclusion of Africans from the Columbian Exposition and in the midst of thousands of lynchings. And they celebrated the accomplishments of those post-slavery who had demonstrated their capacities and their skills. But most importantly, they hailed those accomplishments not only as the accomplishments of black Americans, but the accomplishments of American principles. And these are constantly repeated themes. I won't elaborate all the examples of them uh, any more than I will speak to Eatonville and its black Seminole uh, and, uh, traditions, which are all reported in these standards as appropriate to be taught to school children. Um, I, I want to note the context, which maybe is why so many people have felt uncomfortable here. They know that Ron DeSantis is the governor of Florida, that he has pushed very hard on culture war issues, and also uh, he, he's, he's pushed into the universities. He also signed something called the Stop Woke Act, and one of the things it is said to do is prohibit teachings that might make students feel, quote, guilt or discomfort for historic wrongs. Knowing the context in which your work was going to be seen and also used, I mean, teachers in under that law are going to interpret these standards and decide what to teach. Were you entirely comfortable working for the state of Florida? I didn't work for the state of Florida. Go on. This is a volunteer effort. I was not compensated for it. I responded to a general call for people with interest in and commitment to the educational institutions of the state 
to respond, and I responded, and I participated willingly. It was an offer, a contribution of voluntary public service. The context was, what should school children be asked to learn when a standalone strand of curriculum standards is for the first time initiated in the state of Florida? That's the context. That's the, where we worked, and I'm certainly perfectly content that I had the opportunity to contribute to that. And I'll just mention, since you said that Eatonville is in the standards, I've done a search here, and the word Eatonville is, in fact, mentioned six times in the standards. As well as the name Zora Neale Hurston. Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, We've just got about 10 or 15 seconds left here. Bottom line, do you think that teachers following these standards will give an accurate representation of American history to students? I think teachers are intelligent, and I know because I've worked with a few outstanding teachers in a mentoring relationship in Florida, and they understand that the standards give them the opportunity to teach. They do not dictate to them what to say. Okay. William Allen is a member of the work group behind Florida's new African-American history curriculum. Professor, thanks. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, Hunter Biden has pleaded not guilty to federal tax charges after a judge questioned the terms of his plea deal struck with the DOJ. It's 819. It's been 70 years since the Korean War armistice when many American troops were brought back home. The peace treaty was welcome. The Marines and soldiers were not getting killed anymore. I'm Juana Summers. American veterans remember a war that claimed nearly 5 million lives. On All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. A heat advisory goes into effect later this morning for nearly the entire state. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce says this should be our first official heat wave of the summer. Well, it's going to be hotter and more humid than yesterday. Highs climb into the mid-90s this afternoon. Oppressive humidity, the heat index right around 100. Heat advisories in place. Scattered thunder develops during the afternoon, lingering into the evening. Some of the storms could become severe, so be aware and prep to seek shelter if necessary. Damaging wind gusts, localized flooding, the primary threats. will be storm-free tomorrow, but hot again with highs in the mid-90s. The heat index again around 100. And another round of storms on Saturday with a high of 90 would make this an official heat heat wave relief on Sunday, though less humid, high 75 to 80. Right now, it's 74 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. SmartMouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. From the Cy Sims Foundation, Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at UMA.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. 
After Mexico's men's soccer team won the Gold Cup this month, an ESPN Deportes reporter in Inglewood, California, approached fans dressed in Mexico's green jersey. He started interviewing a little boy who was wearing one too and introduced him in Spanish by saying, here is the future of Mexico. Come here, kid. What is your name? My, my name? The boy seemed confused and the studio anchors commented that he doesn't understand. It's a generation that no longer speaks Spanish, they said. A Twitter post of the video went viral saying, raise your kids not to be yo no sabo, which is a term that refers to a Latinx person who is not fluent in Spanish. I talked to two people who have had their own no sabo moments. Lucia Lainez is a bilingual speech language pathologist. Her family comes from Nicaragua. I was able to communicate with my grandmother, for example, who spoke Spanish, but she always responded in English. Also, Jacqueline Delgadillo, a writer born in Mexico and raised in Southern California. To go back to my home country and then feel like my Spanish wasn't good enough, it made me feel like I had failed in some way. Delgadillo wrote a piece for Refinery29 titled Yo No Sabo, we're redefining what it means to be a no sabo kid. And we talked about why Spanish is tied to Latinx identity. I think because there's a wide assumption that Spanish is the main language spoken across Latin America. And so if you don't speak it, then you're not really Latina or you don't have the right to really claim that identity. But I think that's a huge misconception because there's so many languages that are spoken across Latin America. Spanish isn't even native to Latin America, right? And so to use it as like a metric of Latinidad is really, it's pretty ridiculous. So who do you think then is to blame for your Spanish slipping to the point where you noticed it? Lucia, let's start with you. Is it your parents' fault? Is it your fault? Is it the culture's fault? Um, my grandmother came in the 50s, my grandmother and my grandfather, on my mom's side. My dad was an immigrant and he came after the Civil War in Nicaragua in the late 70s, early 80s. And so I did not have access to the culture of Nicaragua. And so when I think about uh, who's to blame, I think about all the sentiments that um, my ancestors experienced um, in order to assimilate to the values here within America. Do you think learning and knowing Spanish is critical to keeping your cultural traditions alive? Um, I will say that being bilingual does not equate to being bicultural. Also, um, serving professionally as a bilingual speech-language pathologist, we have educators in school districts really throughout the country that are um, pushing to dilute the curriculum and move away from celebrating diversity. There's this idea of, let's go and speak American. I think rather than placing the blame on anyone, whether it's the individual or if it's their parents, like. I think it's our community responsibility to stop shaming each other for our language abilities and to understand that celebrating and embracing and passing on our culture can be done in many ways, not just through language. So then what do you think it means to redefine what it means to be a no sabo kid? I think that there is just so much shame around being a no sabo kid, that to redefine it just means accepting where you're at and accepting, you know, how fluent you are in Spanish and 
letting go of that shame and not letting someone else decide for you how Latina you are or how much you can claim your culture. Lucia, what about you? What does it mean to redefine what it means to be a No Sabo kid? I feel like I am becoming my most authentic self. So if I can accept myself for what my journey has been, who I've become and who I want to continue to become, uh, recognizing that I am a lifelong learner, recognizing that I come from descendants of very, very strong people that have had to learn many survival tactics um, in order to, for me to continue to thrive. That's bilingual speech language pathologist Lucia Linas and writer Jacqueline Delgadillo. Thanks uh, to you both. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. This is the kind of news story that forces you to take a breath. Sinead O'Connor has died at the age of 56. NPR's Anastasia Siolkas has this appreciation. When Sinead O'Connor broke out on the music scene in 1987, she was just 20 years old and a brand new mother. But the wisdom and depth in her voice immediately marked her as an old soul. Along with having that arresting sound, she was physically beautiful. But she shaved her head in an explicit rejection of the male gaze and of a record industry that still relied very heavily on women's sex appeal to sell music. The cover of her first album, The Lion and the Cobra, shows her in a punkish tank top with her arms crossed defensively over her heart. She embodied both fire and fragility. Three years later, she became a mainstream star with her album, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got, and especially the song, Nothing Compares to You, which was written by Prince. But soon, she was as famous for her declarations as for her songs. During a 1992 appearance on Saturday Night Live, after singing Bob Marley's anti-racist song, War, she infamously ripped up a picture of the then-Pope, John Paul II, as an outcry against child abuse. This was decades before child abuse in the Catholic Church became a worldwide outrage, but her prescient protest was treated as poison by many, and her career faltered. In her later years, O'Connor wrote frequently on social media about her struggles with her mental health. She released uneven recording projects spanning reggae, new age, and folk pop, but her fans still cherished her singular voice and presence. Anastasia Tsilikas, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up in 15 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition. We look at calls uh, for Massachusetts to crack down on how utility companies use ratepayer money to fund political activities. It's 829. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find the WBUR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. And Museum of Science. Maneuver through vibrant, mind-bending illusions, 3D puzzles, and kinetic play at the new traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games. Tickets at MOS.org. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A large section of the U.S. is under heat warnings or advisories. The extreme heat largely extends from Texas to New England. Dallas is expecting an afternoon high of 100 degrees. Cities such as Nashville, Little Rock, Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia are forecast to reach the mid to upper 90s. Later today at the White House, President Biden is expected to announce efforts by the federal government to help protect workers and communities from extreme heat. Here's NPR's Barbara Sprunt. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters the announcements will reflect the president's longstanding commitment to addressing climate change. This includes investments through NOAA to improve weather predictions as well as grants through the Department of Interior to bring clean, reliable drinking water to communities across the West. Biden will be joined at the event by the mayors of Phoenix and San Antonio to discuss the impacts of the extreme weather conditions on their cities and the steps they're taking with the administration to protect their communities. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, Washington. Borrowing money will cost more now that the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates by another quarter point. The Fed raised short-term rates yesterday for the 11th time since March of last year to try to ease inflation in the U.S. economy. It remains above the Fed's annual target of 2 percent. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chinoy. The local power companies say they're ready to deal with the surge in demand that'll come with our summer's first heat wave. The National Weather Service says a heat advisory will go into effect later this morning. That's because it's going to feel like over 100 degrees today. A number of communities, including Boston and Worcester, will have cooling centers open, and the state will keep pools and other swimming areas open late to help people beat the heat. The Massachusetts State Auditor plans to take legal action in an effort to audit the House and Senate. Diana DeZoglio is asking the state attorney general for support in the lawsuit. Leaders in both the House and Senate say DeZoglio does not have the authority to audit them. DeZoglio says the legislature is the only state entity refusing to be audited. I find uh, it unfortunate that anyone would personalize any effort to increase transparency, accountability, and equity uh, in a legislature that is frequently ranked as the least transparent legislature in the entire nation. She has not said what she'll do if the attorney general refuses to give the go-ahead on a lawsuit. Senator Elizabeth Warren wants to create a new government commission to regulate online platforms. The Massachusetts Democrat introduced the bipartisan plan alongside Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. They say the commission would regulate how big tech companies can access and use consumer data. It would also implement rules meant to promote competition in the tech industry. The average Boston parent is likely to spend about $650 on back-to-school shopping this year. That's according to a new survey from consulting firm Deloitte. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, most families say their back-to-school budget is about the same or slightly less than last year's. Survey authors say spending on clothing is going to take the biggest hit this season, with an expected drop of about 20 percent from last year. Technology spending is down about 13 percent. Evan Sheehan is a global retail, wholesale and distribution sector leader with Deloitte. He says the dip in tech spending was expected after the pandemic. I really just kind of chalked that up to, you know, you don't need a new Chromebook, MacBook or laptop or iPad every year. 
And most folks went out and took care of those things during the pandemic. Sheehan adds that a little more than half of Boston families surveyed said they have less disposable income this year and are adjusting their spending plans because of it. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare and a new food truck, available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. The Red Sox have now won four in a row. They beat Atlanta 5-3 to last night at Fenway. The Sox are off today. They'll visit the San Francisco Giants tomorrow. Last night in Foxborough, the New England Revolution beat the Mexican team Atlético de San Luis 5-1 to in Leaks Cup action. And your forecast, clear skies and humid today with high temperatures in the mid-90s. There's a chance of thunderstorms late this afternoon and evening. Tonight it falls to the low 70s and the storms may continue. Sunny in 90s again tomorrow. Right now it's 76 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Hunter Biden does not yet have a plea agreement on a gun charge. President Biden's son spent several awkward hours in court yesterday. This is a little complex, so it's worth taking a moment to run it down. Biden expected to plead guilty and avoid prison for tax and gun charges. Instead, the judge had questions about how this deal is supposed to work. Prosecutors filed the tax and gun charges during a wider investigation into Biden's business dealings. Republicans talk about those business dealings on Fox News all the time. So Biden wants assurance against future prosecution, especially if former President Trump returns to office. The judge held up the deal to clarify just how it would work and how much protection Biden would receive. Republicans remain eager to connect the case to President Biden. Past investigations have failed to do that, but House Republicans have talked of trying again through an impeachment inquiry. NPR's congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us now. Uh, Deirdre, how are House Republicans messaging this? I mean, they're saying this ongoing investigation proves that there are serious allegations around Hunter Biden's business dealings, and Congress should be looking at them. Beyond Hunter's plea deal about tax and the gun charge, Republicans are focused on other allegations, allegations that Hunter Biden involved his father, who was then vice president, in some of his business dealings with foreign companies. I talked to House Oversight Chairman James Comer, who says he's more focused on the president than Hunter. At the end of the day, I'm investigating Joe Biden. Hunter Biden's the subject of that investigation because I think the president used his son to launder all this money. We should say that House Republicans have not corroborated any of the allegations about any payments involving President Biden. The White House says the president was never in business with his son. How are Democrats responding? I talked to Jerry Nadler. He's the top Democrat on the House Judiciary Committee. He stresses that the prosecutor who's still investigating Hunter Biden was appointed by former President Trump. And he says there's no evidence linking the president to any wrongdoing. And Nadler says talk about impeaching Biden is all about the 2024 election. 
This is all firstly absurd and second of all really designed to take people's attention away from the real indictments of, uh, for, of former President Trump. He's talking about indictments that former President Trump faces related to his handling of classified documents and other cases. Do House Republicans agree that impeachment should be pursued? For now, House Republicans are pretty united on this idea that it's their responsibility to conduct oversight and investigate allegations, get testimony from witnesses and some Biden administration officials, but not all want a vote. You know, those on the far right want one and started calling for one right after Biden was elected on impeachment. But more mainstream Republicans say the House needs to build any case using evidence first and then decide whether it actually rises to impeachment. But, you know, Speaker McCarthy has just a four-vote majority. He's facing a lot of pressure from members on the right, the Republican base, and the former president to impeach. What about Senate Republicans? Are they on board? You know, many are not. They see a chance for themselves to win back control of the Senate in 2024 and think impeachment could step on their message on the economy. I talked to Texas Republican Senator John Cornyn, who says even if the House impeached, there aren't the votes to convict Biden in the Senate. He wants to spend time on other more productive things and legislating. Here's Cornyn. I just think that we need to try to work out our political differences and not use tools like impeachment to try to uh, redress our grievances. And the top Senate Republican Mitch McConnell said impeachment should be rare. He says he understands why House Republicans may want to go down that road because they oppose the two Trump impeachments. But he says multiple impeachments are not good for the country. NPR's Deidre Walsh, thanks. Thank you. A very small portion of the population identifies as transgender, but a very large part of this country's political discussion touches on transgender issues. Twenty states have now banned some medical care for transgender children, and nearly half of those laws are being challenged in federal court. Here's Louisville Public Media's Morgan Watkins. Back in March, the Kentucky legislature debated whether to ban gender-affirming hormone therapy for minors. Here's Republican State Representative Jennifer Decker defending the plan. I have great compassion for the children, parents, and their families who are in this situation. However, ultimately, it is our obligation to protect children from irreparable harm. The ban passed in Kentucky, and now the debate has shifted to the courts. That's true here and in other states with similar laws. A question at the heart of these lawsuits is, do bans on gender-affirming care violate the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution? So the problem with gender-affirming care is that it's never been challenged before. The question of do parents have a right to provide their children with gender-affirming care is a new question. That's Abigail Moncrief. She's co-director of Cleveland State University's Center for Health Law and Policy. Right now, almost all the lawsuits are in the early stages, but you can separate the rulings we've seen so far into two camps. The first camp says parents probably do have a right to get their kids gender-affirming care. Several district courts fall into that group. Moncrief says they also argue, The medical care that's at issue is not unsafe or ineffective or quack medicine. Therefore, a statute interfering with a parent's right to make that choice on behalf of their child is unconstitutional. Moncrief says Camp 2 argues gender-affirming care bans likely do not violate the 14th Amendment. It only has one member so far, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Earlier this month, the Sixth Circuit let Tennessee's ban temporarily take effect. That prompted a district court judge to reinstate Kentucky's ban, too. The appeals court warns against judges hamstringing legislatures. Here's how Moncrief describes a main theme of the ruling. 
courts should be extremely hesitant to create new constitutional rights that block the states from experimenting with legislative approaches. The Sixth Circuit also argues the bans likely do not discriminate against trans children based on sex. Moncrief thinks other courts will join the Sixth Circuit in Camp 2. There's a good chance you'll see a circuit split, where appeals courts reach different conclusions about the law's constitutionality. That's one reason why she thinks the U.S. Supreme Court will weigh in on this issue eventually. I'm honestly not sure whether they'll jump in quickly or whether they'll wait for a little while to let the question percolate. But kids' health care is on the line, says Bobby Glass, a Kentucky educator and trans woman. She's watching the courts. And now we have a, a, a predominantly conservative Supreme Court. And uh, their judgment is going to be really tested in all of this. Glass says it's a relief to see district court judges criticize states' baseless medical arguments for prohibiting care for trans kids. Well, you know, it's like, gosh, maybe there is some hope that there's some sanity because what you have is flawed theology, toxic religion running rampant over the Constitution. And the legal system is changing, says Moncrief, so it isn't obvious how the courts might rule. The Constitution is resting on shifting sands, and it's a little unclear how it's going to settle. In the meantime, that uncertainty weighs on many transgender kids and their families. For NPR News, I'm Morgan Watkins in Louisville. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report breaks down new ways to save more money for retirement that go into effect next year. There's a heat advisory in effect today with high humidity adding to dangerous conditions. It'll be sunny and in the mid-90s. There's a chance of showers and storms that may get severe this afternoon and into the evening. Overnight, it falls to the low 70s. Tomorrow, sunny, humid again, and in the 90s again. It's 76 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, tourists are returning to Massachusetts in greater numbers than seen before the pandemic. Data compiled by the State Office of Travel and Tourism show visitors to the state spent more than $24 billion last year. That's more than they spent in 2019. Kate Fox is the office's executive director. She says the increase was likely due to pent-up demand. We were calling it revenge travel they were planning longer vacations. They were seeing more sites and making up for, for lost time. We also saw a lot more weddings coming back, the weddings that were missed during the pandemic. Fox says the increase was largely due to domestic travel. The number of international visitors has yet to return to pre-pandemic levels. Workers at Boston-based Fenway Health are planning a vote to unionize. The group includes medical assistants, nurses, therapists, and nurse practitioners. Those workers say they want better support for employees who are Black, Indigenous, and people of color. They're also asking for more training and pay adjustments to meet the cost of living. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BioNova Scientific a CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services for biologics. BioNova Scientific, where concept becomes cure. And the law firm of Nutter, McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Three states have recently passed new laws regulating how utilities spend your money. 
Connecticut, Colorado, and Maine now explicitly prohibit utilities from using the money they collect from ratepayers to help fund political activities. That includes things like grassroots lobbying, trade association fees, and certain forms of advertising. At least two other states are considering similar changes, and some here in Massachusetts say we should follow suit. To help us understand what's at stake, I'm joined by WBUR environmental reporter Miriam Wasser. Good morning, Miriam. Good morning, Rupa. Thanks for having me. I think some listeners might be surprised to hear that when they pay their monthly gas or electric bill, they could be helping to fund their utilities' political goals. Can you give us some context? What are utilities trying to do here? Yes, I totally get that feeling of surprise. But utilities are political actors, and experts say that they often use their influence and money to try to influence climate policy or slow down the energy transition. Um, one, for, you know, one example, gas utilities, they have a vested interest in maintaining the gas pipeline system. And I would say that this matters for two reasons. One, it's your money. And two, utilities are monopolies, right? Like if you don't like the politics of a fast food chain or a bank, you can take your business elsewhere, but you do not get to choose who delivers your gas or electricity. Are there any restrictions right now on what utilities can do with our money once they collect it from us? Yes, absolutely. I do not want to give the impression that utilities can just use your money for anything. Um, In Massachusetts, the Department of Public Utilities has rules and standards. For example, utilities are not supposed to use your money to pay lobbyists to advocate for bills at the statehouse. If they want to do that, which they can, they have to pay for it with shareholder profits. But Experts say that there are loopholes in the status quo, and that's why we need stronger rules. Charlie Spatz is with the Energy and Policy Institute, which is a utility watchdog group. These utility commissions need to protect consumers and make sure that they're not being conscripted to pay for the political expenditures that shareholders should be picking up the tab for. So what kind of loopholes are we talking about? Yeah, sure. So one thing that came up, you know, time and time again when I'm talking to people is the annual membership dues that utilities pay to trade associations. So to back up, a lot of investor-owned utilities are part of trade groups like the American Gas Association or the Edison Electric Institute. And utilities say that ratepayers should pick up the tab for the hundreds of thousands of dollars they spend on these membership fees. They say these groups provide a lot of training and logistical support, which enables utilities to safely deliver power. And the utilities are also very clear that, you know, they only charge ratepayers for the portion of the membership dues that goes to activities other than lobbying. But a lot of environmentalists say, like, hold on, it's not actually that simple. You know, they'll say these trade groups are inherently political. And even when they're not lobbying Congress, they do other things to try to influence policymakers and the public. You know, some of these groups have fought rooftop solar or launched national campaigns about the superiority of gas stoves. Caitlin Peel Sloan of the Conservation Law Foundation told me that as far as she's concerned, these groups are essentially just big lobbying engines on a national scale for fossil fuels. That's absolutely not something that customers should have to pay for. So what is being done here in Massachusetts on this? Is anyone on Beacon Hill taking action? So right now, there's no specific legislation about it. But a few weeks ago, the Conservation Law Foundation did send a petition to the Department of Public Utilities asking it to unilaterally close some of these loopholes. 
And when I asked the department for a comment, they they declined. But some experts I spoke with said it is well within their rights as the utility regulator to make these changes. So at this point, we kind of just have to wait and see if they'll take it up. And what are the utilities saying? I reached out to Eversource and National Grid, and they both basically told me that these new laws aren't really necessary. They said the state already has rules about how utilities can pay for political activities and that they follow them. WBOR environmental reporter Miriam Wasser, thank you so much for walking us through this. Thanks for having me. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have more on the apparent coup in the West African nation of Niger and the latest from the Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. It's 8.50. We've all noticed more and more businesses asking us to leave a tip, from coffee shops and breweries to takeout and drive throughs The box popped up when I went to pay, like, what tip amount? I thought, you know, it's fast food. I don't tip. I didn't know what to do. I just didn't. But it's Subway fast food. I wasn't sure. I started to panic. I'm Tiziana Deering, navigating the new rules of tipping. That's On Point, this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. President Biden plans to announce strategies to combat extreme heat in the southwest today. Fighting has increased in the southern part of Ukraine as the country has upped its counteroffensive there. And the U.S. Commerce Department says the economy grew 2.4 percent in the second quarter of the year, a sign that the threat of a recession may be shrinking. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru, featuring the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont, and at citysidesubaru.com. It's a Subaru summer. Sunny and in the mid-90s today, with the humidity making it feel like 100 degrees. Beginning this afternoon and into the evening, there's a chance of showers and storms that may get severe. Overnight, it falls to the low 70s. Right now, it's 77 degrees in Boston. You've seen electric cars, but ever see an electric plane? And I don't mean tiny hobby ones. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab understands that wealth management is personal. That's why Schwab offers flexible, personalized financial planning crafted for their investors' individual goals. Learn more at schwab.com. I'm David Brancaccio. First, we just learned that gross domestic product in the U.S. grew at an annual rate of 2.4 percent in the spring to summer quarter. This is higher economic growth than forecast and also up from the 2 percent growth we saw in the first three months of the year. The economy is not in recession. It was probably the macroeconomic and financial world's worst kept secret that the Federal Reserve would raise interest rates yesterday to the highest in 22 years. And what did Fed Chief Jerome Powell say or not say about what is next? Marketplace's Nancy Marshall Genzer was at the briefing and has more. 
Fed Chair Powell acknowledged there has been some progress on inflation. The Consumer Price Index for June was up just 3 percent over last year. But much of the disinflation we're seeing is due to falling prices for energy and other commodities. Russia recently pulled out of a deal allowing Ukraine to export grain through the Black Sea. And Powell is keeping a close eye on developments there. Grain prices did go up on this news, but they remain well below their peaks of last spring. And the moves that we've seen so far, I would say, are not expected to make a significant contribution to U.S. inflation. But core inflation, which excludes volatile food and energy prices, is still more than double the Fed's target. Powell says what the Fed does at its next meeting in September depends on the data, pointing out that we'll get two more reports on inflation and jobs before then. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. Facebook meta shares are up 10 percent in pre-market trading now after strong profits and quarterly advertising sales. NASDAQ futures are up 1.5 percent. S&P futures up 8 percent, eight tenths percent, of course. A new stock gets going for the first time today. It's SRFM, Surf Air Mobility. It's doing short passenger flights under 500 miles and is developing an electric motor, electric, to take climate-altering carbon out of the air travel industry. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes has that. When a trip's less than 500 miles, Americans tend to drive, not fly. Companies like Surfair want to change that by making the little planes used for these routes less expensive to operate. Alon Head is senior editor at The Air Current, a trade publication. There's increasing interest in the idea that electric aircraft can really reduce the costs of operating small airplanes. Head, who's also a helicopter pilot, says electric motors are really simple, which makes them easier to maintain than turbine engines. That could bring costs down. They're also limited to short ranges, which makes them best suited for regional travel, and could also make better use of the country's 5,000 public airports, says Matthew Clark, aerospace engineering professor at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. There are so many airports littered across the entire country, so the infrastructure is there. But the regulation is not. The U.S. has yet to approve electric passenger planes for public use. And even if it does, passengers have to be willing to leave their cars behind. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Indeed, a streamlined hiring solution. Indeed helps businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. And by Odoo, focused on providing all-in-one open-source business management software with fully integrated applications for every business need. More at Odoo.com. Not to be a nudge, but if you can't go out because of the heat, maybe use some of the indoor time to review personal finances. Pieces of a new law on retirement savings going to affect next year that are a reminder for people 50 and over to keep an eye on the extra bits of money they're allowed to sock away. Marketplace's senior economics contributor Chris Farrell is here with that. Hello. Good morning, David. Catch up on your fries, right? But for those saving for retirement and that person is old enough, there's a different kind of catch up. Yeah, 
It's actually a little bit harder than ketchup on your fries, by the way, David. But okay. So two decades ago, Congress said, let's have this ketchup contribution for workers that are 50 years or over in your employer-sponsored retirement savings plan. And the latest figures for those who are 50 years and older is that they can put in an additional contribution of $7,500. Now, David, that's on top of the maximum $22,500 per year that anyone can put into a company-sponsored 401k plan. So the regular amount plus the catch-up extra equals $30,000 that you could save if you had the money to do that each paycheck. Right. I mean, most workers ages 55 to 64 with access to an employer-sponsored retirement savings plan, they've only set aside enough to generate a few hundred dollars a month in retirement income. And if you look at the Federal Reserve data, it suggests that the typical near retiree has 144000 in retirement savings. The mutual fund company Vanguard found that the typical worker near retirement has 71000 in their 401k. So in the Vanguard study, only 16 percent took advantage of the catch-up feature. And not surprisingly, they were among the better paid employees who were already putting the maximum into their retirement savings plan. But for those who can put the catch-up money in, hear ye, hear ye. If you're 50 and older, this catch-up provision is changing for next year. So for 401k participants earning 145000 or more in the prior year, the catch-up contributions will no longer be made in tax-deductible dollars. The catch-up portion will be made in after-tax Roth contributions. So to make that clear, you'll pay taxes on those catch-up contributions up front, but you won't pay any taxes on any gain when the money is withdrawn in retirement. And by the way, the shift is probably to the benefit of most people since this allows for greater tax diversification with the retirement savings. Marketplace's senior economics contributor, Chris Farrell. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, David. Tomorrow here, we switch the focus to younger workers. Chris and I are going to look at a system on the way where employers can double your student loan payments. That'll be at marketplace.org tomorrow if you miss it on the air. I'm David Brancaccio with our morning report. From APM, American Public Media. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.